hope I wasn't the only one who, when we sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow, I hope I wasn't the only one who was blessed to have some different words to sing to that familiar tune. Did you sense that when you sang them? I, I want to thank the praise team for doing that. And I, I asked them to put this back on the screen. These words, praise Jesus, Savior, God's own Son. Praise him for all the victories won. His death has conquered hell and sin. He lives. He lives that we might reign with him. And you can say that four times and be okay. Actually, the reason I wanted that to put up, be put on the screen, it goes along with what we're discovering as we look at the seven churches of Revelation, and that is that we do not serve a Savior who is not alive, but we serve a live Savior who is walking in the midst of each one of those seven churches. And he's walking in the midst of our church. And he's walking with you and with me. His mouth, eyes, and feet. Revelation 2, 12 to 29. For those of you who are guests, and we're not going to spend as much time as we have in the past, but we're doing a series that is based on the, the story of God, his story, that runs our sanctuary in our stained glass, doing a series on each one of those stained glass windows, beginning with creation and going all the way to the second coming. And we are now on the one that is right above the screen, and it's the church. And we thought it would be a perfect time to talk about the church and the seven churches of Revelation as we look at the church between the time of the end of the Bible and the second coming of Jesus. We discovered a few weeks ago that there are four views of Revelation. There are four views. The first one is historicism has an eschatological or last day view that teaches that the biblical predictions are being fulfilled throughout history and continue to be fulfilled today. The book of Revelation is a prophesied history of the church from the time of its writing right up until the second coming of Jesus, who shall usher in a new heaven and a newer earth wherein dwells righteousness. Are you longing for that day and that time? This was the view of the Reformers. A second view is that of Protoism, which views Christian eschatology as only applicable to the people to whom it was written. It's referring to events that took place in the first century after Christ's birth and are especially associated with those events that occurred with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Its modest roots from the early church were gleaned and formalized by the Jesuit Luis de Alcazar to refute the historicist view of the reformers who taught that the papacy was the Antichrist. Futurism teaches that uh, most of the things in Revelation, especially beginning with chapter 5 and onward, most of them are in the future and are future events and that they are to be looked at literally and physically and worldwide. Chapters 1 to 3 are past. Chapter 4 is somewhat future. It's, it's what's going on in heaven and future as well. And it was developed by the Jesuit Francisco Ribera to refute the Reformers' claim. It was popularized in the mid-1800s and through the charismatic movement, and it is the most common approach today. 
And then there is the idealism view or the spiritual view, and that view is simply that we look at the principles contained in the prophecies and we apply the spiritual principles to our own lives. And people fight over these views. They change how you read Revelation and prophecy. And I would like to suggest to you that there are elements of truth in each one. That Protestantism, there is an aspect in which it was written, especially the first few chapters, to the current church, to the current people who are alive. That there is parts of Revelation that are future and yet to happen. And that while we may be looking at prophecy, there are spiritual lessons for us to apply to our own lives, independent of what era of the, t of the church we live in. And that there is a historical perspective that sweeps through the book of Revelation, the historical church, and how God has been watching over and guiding it. We saw a, a form that, that there is, and I know it doesn't quite, it's, goes beyond the, the borders of the screen, I apologize. But there is a sevenfold description, and this, this is whether, it doesn't matter which view you have, almost everybody believes this, this form is there. And, and that's that it's written to, to the church. There's an address to the church, to, to the city, that there's a meaning in their names. There's a description of Jesus given to each church. There's a commendation by Jesus, a censure or a warning, a counsel given to, by Jesus, a promise given by Jesus, an appeal to hear what the Spirit's saying. We've seen that the church is divided into seven eras, if, if you believe the historical perspective, and I think there's truth in it, and I, I think it's valid. That's my personal belief. But where I have a hard time is when we try to make that we have a definite date when each one starts and a definite date when each one's ends because that gets us into somewhat trouble. And so I see the, the church of Ephesus being in the, perhaps the early part, that's the apostolic era, somewhere around 33 to 100 AD. Smyrna is, is the church of the, of the church fathers, 100 to roughly 313. It's the era of the church fathers. These eras overlap. Pergamum is the era of the early church, the beginning of the, of the early church and, and the, the Catholicism. Thyatira is the period of the Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism, the beginning of the Reformation. Sardis is the period of, of what I call the formal church, where the church got caught up in creeds and formalism and began to spiritualize. It was, it was the church struggling with the, the results of the, of the um, in, Enlightenment that took place in which science was coming on the scene and how do you put your faith and science together? Philadelphia was the church of the Great Awakening, both the first and second and of the early Advent movement, and Laodicea is the church of the last days. Now, let me just give a disclaimer at this point. There is no way I can possibly cover the literal church, the historical church, and how we can apply it to our lives in one sermon for a single church, let alone two. To make it somewhat easier on the website, we will be putting copies, because the book is out of print, we will be putting copies of each chapter on each church along with the sermon. And we will do that if you would like to see it. We're going to be covering this week, we're covering two churches, the Church of Pergamum and Thyatira. And remember, from Patmos, you can see that underlined, the route that was taken was that was the route 
that, a, that was a trade route that would be followed. And it was is in the exact order. And so we're going to be looking at Pergamum or Pergamos and Thyatira this morning. Let's just talk about the literal city of Pergamum for a moment. It was up on a high hill. In fact, the name Pergamum means high and exalted. It was up on a high hill above, above the, uh, the valley. That hill is over a thousand feet above the valley. It was a sheer cliff on all but one side, and it was all but impregnable to anybody coming against the city. It was only defeated by, by war one time when somebody figured out a pathway up the side at, at night and lowered ropes down. They, they did rock climbing and lowered ropes down. And, and the people in the, in the city were so used to, to the safety of the cliffs, as long as they had their gate closed on the one side people could come up, that they didn't really have to set a watch. They didn't have to be aware. They didn't have to worry about whether or not someone was coming, and that was the one time they were defeated. It was located on the banks of the Caracas River. And the name has two meanings. Actually, one is highly elevated, the other is union of marriage. Union of marriage. I, I want you to notice that, that this city uh, was noted for some very important things. It was an educational center. It was the home of the poet Homer. It was also, it also had the second largest library in the then known world, second only to the library in Alexandria. Now, now, what was interesting is that this rivalry between Alexandria and, 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 uh, and Pergamum was so great that Alexandria, who made, who made papyrus, decided they were no longer going to send Pergamum any papyrus. And so they didn't have the reeds to make papyrus, so they came up with another plan. They started using the skins of animals and making parchment so that they could create their books. It was an educational center, but also it was a religious center. It was a religious center. There, pagan worship took place. There was a pantheon of pagan deities. In other words, many, many. Jupiter, Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, Venus, Bacchus, emperor worship. And the primary god of Pergamum, the primary god of Pergamum was Esculap... I knew I was going to mess that up. Esculapius. Esculapius. You know that as the symbol of medicine. It's the symbol of a serpent around a pole. It's the symbol of healing. Now what was interesting about Esculapius was that uh, there was a temple totally dedicated to him and which contained a live snake. That people would come into the temple and worship a live snake. My wife would never do that. But they did. In fact, do you know what the name of that, the, the, the nickname for that God was? He was known as the Great Physician. He was known as the Great Savior. When Cyrus captured Babylon, the high priest of the Chaldeans in Mithraism 
and the majority of the priests fled to Pergamum, and they reestablished the Babylonian worship and made the king of Pergamum the highest priest. That's an interesting fact. And so there was religious worship there, but also this was an important center. It was, if, if Ephesus was New York City, Pergamum would be Washington, D.C. It was the capital of the area. It was here at Pergamum that the decrees of the Caesars were broadcast to the entire area surrounding it. It would come first to Pergamum. In Pergamum were located pre-proconsuls who were there to see that the enactments of the laws would take place. There was located a Roman Supreme Court in Pergamum, and both the proconsuls and the Supreme Court had the double-edged Roman sword as a symbol of their authority and power to make sure that the citizens of Rome would obey the laws of the emperor. Don't miss those things. Now, one of the things we have trouble with when we look at the literal city is while we know what the city was like, we don't know what was going on in the local church at the time. And it's kind of, it's kind of like how our communication has gotten less and less over time. Before the telephone, if you were going to talk to somebody, you had to talk to them face to face. You could see their eyes, you could, you could hear, you could see their facial expressions, you could see their body language, you could hear the tone of their voice. And it added so that you got the full picture of what was going on. With telephone, no longer could you see the body language or see the facial expression. But at least you had the tone of voice, so you, you got a greater idea of what's going on. Today we have email and text messaging, and we've lost 93% of communication. And I bring that up because by, by simply talking about the local church and what was happening in the local church, we may know what happened with the city and how there are ties and connections to what is taught, written here in the book of, of Revelation to each church, but we don't know the local situation in each church that, that John was writing to. But I want you to notice, we're going to cover very briefly the message to Pergamum. It says the description of Jesus is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That would be God's word. Now, if you look at the historical perspective of, of, of the church, it's during that time when, when the, the early church is getting started the Roman church is getting started. And if you look at that, it's a time when God's word needs to be proclaimed both in terms of, of, of providing truth and also as a warning against error. Verse 13 is interesting. If you haven't opened your Bibles, please do to page 1029. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Most of us stop there. Aha! Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. Stay away from Pergamum. I want you to notice the very next word afterwards. It's an important word. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What's the next word? What is it? Yet. Yet. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. 
Ye dwell where Satan's throne is. You see, they had, I almost forgot this, they had an altar to Zeus in his temple, and it was considered the throne of Satan by early Christians. That altar has been moved to Berlin to a museum. Now, now what's interesting? It says, I know where you dwell, where you live where Satan's throne is. You live in a place where, according to the, that time, if you were a Christian, and you were asked if you were a Christian, if you believed in Jesus Christ, and you refused to, to, to worship the emperor, you could be killed on the spot by the double-edged sword. The people who lived in Pergamum were people who lived in a place, who lived in a place where the religious and moral climate was hostile to Christianity. It cost something to be a Christian. And so he writes, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet, in spite of the fact you live in a place that is hostile to Christianity, you've not denied my name. You've held on to the faith. I, I, I want you to notice something that we do with this letter to Pergamum. We rush down to the part where Jesus gets after the church for the things that it's doing wrong. We rush to the part to figure out what Baron is and what the Nicolaitans is and what it means to practice sexual immorality and idolatry and all that. And we need to look at those things. But we skip the part where he commends them. We skip the part where he, he says, I want to tell you what I value about you. It's almost as if what Jesus said that was good about them doesn't matter to us. And it should. So as I thought about that this week, and as I looked at it, as I looked at it, it says, you did not deny my faith. You did not, you held fast to my name or my character. And I thought, during that time period of the you know, roughly around 300 or, or 313 or so to 500-something, to, uh, to roughly in that time period, what was going on in the church in which they, they held fast to his name? And it dawned on me. There were three councils, three councils that hammered out some very important theology. The Council of Nicaea in AD 325, the Council of Constantinople in A.D. 381, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. I want you to notice what they hammered out. And aside from that, it was during this time period that the canon of the New Testament was finalized. Don't forget that. What they hammered out was this. In the Council of Nicaea, they hammered out the teaching that Jesus Christ and God are co-equal. They're co-equal. And not only that, the Council of Nicaea created what we know as the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. How did I get out? I'm out of order somehow. If you can help me out back there and put me in order. The Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed reads this way. It's the basics of Christianity. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. 
We bear in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That word Catholic is small c. It means universal. One universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Is there a single thing in that statement you could not say, I believe that? I, I don't believe that. Isn't every single thing in that true? And, and some of you, if you say, well, no, what about the Catholic thing? Remember, it was talking, this was before the Catholic Church was actually created. It was in the process. It's talking about God's church, God's people everywhere who belong to him. That church of this time period, he, God spoke of, Jesus spoke of as holding fast to his character because it was exemplifying and teaching his character. What was interesting is that the Church of Constantinople in 381, it, it hammered out the belief in the Holy Spirit and hammered out the belief of the Trinity. And in Chalcedon in 451, it was there that Jesus was first described in, and accepted as being fully God and fully man at the same time. Without those things being hammered out, the early church would have faded into history. No wonder Jesus said, you have not denied my name. No wonder Jesus said, you have held fast, you did not deny my faith, you hold fast my name. No wonder he said, I'm coming to you as the one whose mouth is like a sharp two-edged sword because only the word could define those things as real. It goes on, and it makes the warnings about the teachings of Baal and the Nicolaitans who were teaching the same thing. Basically, what they were saying is, we're going to sell out our religion, as Balaam did, for money and for acceptance with the powers that be. We're going to sell out for wealth and for the favor of the king. We're going to set aside that which we know to be true in order that we might be more acceptable to others. It was a church of compromise. And Jesus urged that church to repent. But I want you to notice what he says he will give them, the promise. To this church who was living in a place where there was hostile to Christianity, he says, I will give you some of the hidden manna. Remember, the hidden manna was in the ark. It was a reminder of God's provision for his people to take care of them while they were in the wilderness wandering. It was a reminder, reminder of his ability to, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs. He says, I will give them a white stone. And now there are three things that 
people think that that white stone might refer to. One was in, a in the court of justice, if you got the white stone, you were acquitted. If you got a black stone, you were judged guilty. And many have used that through the years. It's probably a good one to use. Another use of the white stone was when a victor crossed the finish line in the Olympics. He'd be given a white stone if he was the first one, and then because he had that white stone as the victory, he could go get his laurel wreath. The third one was they would give a white stone with a person's name written on it if they were invited to a festival or to some meeting that wasn't open to all. And you could only enter if you had the white stone with your name on it. That's a fairly recent discovery, and it seems to me that's probably the one that fits the best. But I want you to notice what it says. It's not just any name. He says, you will be given a white stone with a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Why is that? Because you know the aspect of God's character that he's placed within you, that he's placed within you as you've responded to him. It's your own personal nickname given you by God. I grew up, I didn't have a nickname. Except my grandfather gave me one. I think I've mentioned this before. He called me Knucklehead. I don't know what I did to deserve that nickname, but that's what he called me, Knucklehead. It was a term of endearment that is still enduring to this day. Don't try it. Only he can call me that. But I, just think about it for a second. The God of the universe wants you to know he has a special pet name for you. That's how much you mean to him. We're going to have to go quickly on to Thyatira. Thyatira, the literal city, there really isn't much to say about it. The literal city of Thyatira was, was a city that was basically defenseless. It was on a plane. It, it was destroyed and rebuilt many, many times. Destroyed by earthquakes, destroyed by marauders, destroyed by, by other governments. It was known for two things. It was known for its guilds, it was known for its, its cheap labor and its guilds, and the guilds made two things that they were known for. They made scarlet and purple cloth, and they made brass and bronze. They had foundries for brass and bronze. And when you read what it says about Thyatira, Jesus pictures himself as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, a foundry. And his feet are like burnished bronze. There you go. And this is the church that was prominent throughout the, the, the period of the Roman Catholic Church in history and also of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And notice what it says. He said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. It seems to fit, doesn't it? And I want you to notice, it doesn't belittle what that love and faith is. But as you think about the history of Christianity, how many groups would hide out and how many groups would stand up for their faith and their love for God in spite of persecution? No wonder Jesus said to them, I know your works. I know your love. I know your endurance. He goes on. And it describes at some length, this is the longest of the letters, it describes a, a, 
a, a woman named Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches. And you have to go back to the Old Testament and remember what Jezebel did. Jezebel took the teachings of the pagan gods, tried to unite it with the teaching of Jehovah, and bring it together and say this was worshiping God, and it wasn't. It was Jezebel who, who ordered the death of, of Elijah after Elijah's, after Elijah's sacrifice was accepted and her priests weren't. It was Jezebel who tried to force people by threat of death to follow the gods she served. And this Jezebel does the same thing during this time period. And later on in Revelation, in Revelation 17, it talks about the same kind of Jezebel. I want you to notice, I want you to notice the command that's given to the church who's living during this long period of time. The one who conquers and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations or over the people, and they will rule with a rod of iron. And I spent a lot of time thinking and wondering, why would I tell them that? They never, ever really ruled over anyone until it dawned on me. When someone stands up for truth and right, they may lose their life, but they are the one who comes out as conquerors, right? They may look defeated by the, the government or whoever it is that's persecuting them, but they're the ones who end up standing tall. I want you to notice what Jesus says he will give to these people in Pergamum, those who endure to the end. He says, I will give him the morning what? The morning what? I want everyone to say that. You need to hear it. The morning what? Star. star. In the Bible, only one thing is mentioned as the morning star. And that one thing is Jesus. To this church caught up in error and caught up in trying to, to mingle truth and falsehood, Jesus says he's going to give us himself. Jesus tells them, I'm giving you myself. Is there anything more that is needed? What's interesting is that we call this period of time the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. And Jesus says to a church living in the Dark Ages, I'm going to give you the morning star. The morning star is the star that appears just before the dawn. It's the star that gives promise for a brighter day. It's a star that lets you know that the darkness is about to be eclipsed by the brightness of the sun. To this church in darkness, Jesus says he comes as the morning star. The one thing I don't want you to leave with this morning, this afternoon, is this. I don't want you to leave looking back on the period of time in history for Pergamum, and for Thyatira. I want you to leave saying, in what ways do I compromise? In what ways do I sell God short? In what ways do I not look at his character of love and put that together with what I believe to be true? In what ways do I, do I make what I do the basis of my experience instead of what he has done. 
the title of the sermon is Mouth, Mouth and Hands and Feet. Why did I pick that title? I want you to notice again how Jesus describes himself. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus describes himself as walking among the churches, the church of his day, the church throughout history, and among the church here today, among you and me, as the one whose mouth is his word that speaks to us and lets us know of his great love for us and how we, we can follow him. I want you to notice that he is the one who with his hands gives the hidden manna and with his hands gives us the white stone. And he is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. What does that mean? It is often believed that that is a symbol of the cloud that walked with the, with the disciples and led them and guided them through the wilderness. In this church, in the long period of history in the wilderness, even though that is a church, it's still, it's still, I said, it said a feet, I said hands, it should be eyes. It's still guiding him. Jesus' eyes are watching us. He knows all about us, and he's guiding us. Jesus' feet, is, they're guiding us. And they're leading us to the place where we will trust him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our being. This morning, are you willing to listen to what Jesus has to say to you? Are you willing to allow his eyes to look into your life and to know that he examines you and knows you and loves you anyway? Are you willing to follow his guidance and direction through his word, through his spirit, and through the people he's brought into your life who are on the journey with you? In short, are you willing to hear the spirit and what he has to say? To you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Be with us, I pray. May we hear what you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.